Hello and welcome to Feeling Randy, a podcast that is horny for female empowerment. I am your host, Randy. All right, so let's catch up. What's been happening over the last couple of weeks? Um, Well, probably the most significant thing was that I was permanently banned on TikTok. (laughs) Let me go ahead and back up a bit. So I had made a couple of videos about Andrew Tate, and on one of those, a woman commented wanting to know why I didn't talk about the two women that were also arrested at the same time as Andrew Tate. Now keep in mind that the video this person commented on was actually about why Andrew Tate is toxic. Somebody had asked me, you know, why is he toxic? And so I was doing kind of a deep dive as if it's not like blatantly obvious and clear why he's toxic. Times you got to spell it out for these ding-dongs. So her comment didn't even make any sense because I was specifically talking about Andrew Tate's history and why he's toxic. It had nothing to do with his actual arrest. Then I make the mistake of going to her profile and seeing all of her videos. (laughs) She's a men's rights activist. (laughs) Yeah, you heard that right. A woman is a men's rights activist. First of all, men's rights activist is like the most moronic of all the oxymorons and aren't losing their rights. I mean, unless you think that being a piece of shit is a right. And sure, men are losing the right to be a piece of shit with no consequences. So this woman's whole shtick is dragging other women and uplifting men. And not just uplifting men, but uplifting the shittiest of men. I truly don't understand these women at all. Like they are literally throwing their fellow women and themselves under the bus. It's like they want to get run over by terrible, terrible men over and over and over again. You know, you have the pick me woman, the woman that has internalized misogyny that is willing to throw other women under the bus to kind of uplift herself to be picked by mediocre men. But the men's rights activist woman. Oh, yeah, I. Yep. I don't get it. I will never understand these women who make their entire life and their entire personality about advocating for men to the detriment of women. And they're a woman. Make it make sense. Anyway, I responded to her and she didn't like it. So she decided to stitch a couple of my videos. She stitched my videos and suddenly my videos were just inundated with shitty comments from men who look like they live in the sewer. Other ones, they look like the hair that's stuck in your shower drain was real wild and real hairy. (laughs) Then it turns out this woman also spoke to another men's rights activist woman and they basically decided they were going to take me down. My videos were being reported and so I thought, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and take a little like break from TikTok and just lay low. Let the storm blow over and hopefully they'll find somebody else to go bother. And well, that didn't really work. During my little hiatus, I got a notification that I had been permanently banned. No warning, not a bunch of videos being taken down, like no punishment, just banned. I was like, what the literal fuck is going on? Like I've never experienced that because I've been banned before. I got permanently banned back in April, 2022, but like preceding that ban, I had so many videos taken down. I had been punished for 24 hours, 48 hours, five days, seven days. Like there were a whole bunch of consequences to my behavior before I got banned. One of the worst things about TikTok is even if you appeal their decision to take your video down or to punish you, and you win, like they're like, oh, we reviewed this again. There's nothing wrong with this video. We're going to reinstate it. The strike counts against you. It doesn't reset. So you still get punished 
even if there's nothing ultimately wrong with your video. Puts a lot of power in the hands of trolls. Just takes one person that hates you enough to take you down. And that's such bullshit. And this is a perfect example of that. I pissed off one woman and she decided to take me down. This is how they do it. So there's something called a mass reporting bot. And basically it writes an algorithm that allows one person to simultaneously report every single one of your videos, even the videos that are private. Goes through and finds any videos with any potential problem and takes them down all at once. So basically it's like a blitz attack and it triggers TikTok into thinking something is massively wrong and takes down your account, which is what happened to me. So on a positive note, I appealed and they immediately put my account back up. They were like, oh, sorry, there's nothing wrong here we put your account back up. So technically right now I am back on TikTok. I have my account set to private because I have no idea if they're going to try and do it again. I have no idea how many times they can do this and how many times TikTok will allow them. So my account is in a very precarious position, which sucks because I have done nothing wrong other than piss off a men's rights activist, as well as the men who love her. There's a whole other thing, by the way, because these men would never pick this woman. Like, I don't understand how these women think that they will be picked by these men. Like, the men who are advocating for men's rights hate women. I said this in a video. They don't care for you. They wouldn't piss on you if you were on fire. So why are you aligning yourself with them? Like, why are you advocating on their behalf when they would never, ever, ever advocate on your behalf. Like it doesn't make any sense giving all this time and energy over to somebody who would never reciprocate. Why? Why are you doing that? Like, why would you do that? Do you realize that? Do you realize that if you asked them to do for you what you've done for them, they never in a million years would? Do you think that if you asked them to talk about mother's rights, they would? Do you think that if you asked those men to talk about the staggering sexual assault statistics, that's a mouthful, do you think if you asked them to talk about those things and to talk about the role men play in those things and how toxic masculinity plays into those things, do you think if you asked them to talk about those things, they would? Do you think that there is a single topic, any topic at all, where women are at the center of it, that they would talk about it and advocate for it? Do you think that they would? Because I can already answer that right now. And they would never, ever do that. These are not the men that would ever advocate for women, ever. They are literally advocating for their right to continue to treat women like property. They are advocating for their right to be terrible. Because once again, men are not losing their rights. I've said this before, and let me say it again. Rights are not like pie. Just because women are getting more rights, gaining more rights, seeking more rights, does not mean men are having their rights taken. Rights are not being taken from men and then given to women. That's not how this fucking works. Again, it's not pie. And with that, let's wrap up that discussion. I'm so sick and tired of talking about these stupid men's rights activists and their bullshit. My hope is that in the next couple of weeks, I don't have to think about this anymore. And I also hope that I'm able to keep my account. Okay, and let's get into the topic at hand. I had several people ask me if I would talk about why I left the Mormon church. And I've talked about it in bits and pieces on my TikTok, but I've never shared the full story and kind of the why behind it all. And so 
I'm going to do that today. I'm going to talk about my history with the church. I'm going to talk about when I kind of made the initial decision to leave and also how I've been dealing with my own deconstruction. So before I dive in, I just want to say that at the core of why I left the Mormon church is white supremacy and racism, homophobia, and misogyny. I have examples of each of these things and how they manifested in my life and in my experience, but I just wanted to give you that framework. Let's start way back at the very beginning, June 9th, 1978. That's my birthday. That also happens to be the same day that black men were able to get the priesthood in the Mormon church. I bring that up because it's going to be important later on. So yes, I was born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons. It's funny because now they want to be referred to as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they don't want to be referred to as Mormons, which is just kind of weird. Apparently, it has to do with who is the existing prophet right now and his desire for a long time to kind of move away from the Mormon church name. It honestly mostly just feels like a PR stunt. The world knows them as Mormons, and with that comes the good, the bad, the ugly associations with the name. During my time with the church, we were known as the Mormons, and so I'm going to refer to them as such. And in fact, there was an entire campaign called I Am a Mormon. The I Am a Mormon campaign was a series of commercials that featured famous people that were Mormons, cool people with cool jobs. My friend Spencer was one of those people. Hi, Spencer, if you happen to be listening. It was to kind of highlight, hey, look at all these cool, normal, awesome people that are also Mormons. We're not as weird as you think. We're weirder. (laughs) Anyway, I was born a Mormon. It was all I knew. Everyone I knew was Mormon. I mean, it was years before I met someone that wasn't. And when you're born into Mormonism, it's so wrapped up in the core of who you are, it literally makes up the very fabric of your being. It's not just your religion, it's who you are. It's a very high demand religion. It demands a lot of you. And I can't really speak to how other religions are, but when you're a Mormon, it's not just about going to church on Sunday. It's about how you live your life every single day day, about who you interact with every single day. It's told from the time I can remember that I needed to only date Mormon boys because you marry who you date and you cannot, under any circumstances, not marry a Mormon. And of course, I'll be talking about the fucked up shit that's associated with dating as a Mormon, but we're not there yet. So when I was young, I was being indoctrinated without even knowing it. I was indoctrinated into a belief system that was rooted in white supremacy, homophobia, and misogyny. Of course, I didn't realize that at the time. I just thought that's the way things were. Let's start with white supremacy. So remember when I said that my birthday, June 9th, 1978, was the first day that black men received the priesthood? Well, there's a reason for that. Also remember that that's only 44 years ago. I was raised to believe that black people and brown people had a curse on them. I was raised to believe that white people were righteous in the pre-existence. The pre-existence is like where we were hanging out before we came to earth. So those of us that were righteous and obedient in the pre-existence were born white. Those that were extra righteous and extra obedient were born white and in Utah. I am special. Being white makes you special. White supremacy means that black and brown people were not special. There was something inherently wrong with them, but there was hope. If they were good enough and obedient enough and righteous enough on earth, they would turn white in the next life. (laughs) One thing that's important to understand about Mormons is that they have a living prophet, and that prophet has direct access to God. Speak to God, he gets revelations from God, etc. This is just one of many things that I've had a problem with. So if prophets can speak to God and receive revelation from God, and God is all-knowing and all-powerful, 
then why do things change? Why did black men receive the priesthood on June 9th, 1978? Was I taught that the reason I am white is because I am righteous? God suddenly decide on June 9th, 1978 that he wasn't going to be racist anymore? Was it that the prophets before June 9th, 1978 were racist? God wasn't racist, but his prophets were. Were they not listening to God and making things up? Or was it God telling them to be racist? See, that's where things start to fall apart for me. So it's no longer socially acceptable to just actively discriminate against black people. So let's go ahead and give them the priesthood. Suddenly decide that those men are now worthy to receive the priesthood? Which is it? Is God a racist? Are the prophets racist? Prophets actively ignoring the word of God? If they're doing it then, when else have they done it? These are the questions that I asked when I was 14. You know what I was told? Society wasn't ready for black men to hold the priesthood until June 9th, 1978, and God knew that that's when society would be ready. <laughs> oh my God. So 10 years after the height of the civil rights movement is when the Mormon church decided to go ahead and allow black men to have the priesthood. So let's go ahead and assume that's true, right? That suddenly, 10 years after the height of the civil rights movement, people were ready to see black men hold the priesthood in the Mormon church. That still doesn't change the fact that I was born white and born in Utah because I'm righteous. It doesn't change the fact that I was taught that if you were black or brown, that meant you were bad before you got here. Let's talk about how we were also expected to accept colonization. A primary children's song called Book of Mormon Stories that I sang probably every Sunday of my youth. Want to hear it? Book of Mormon Stories that my teacher tells to me Are about the Lamanites in ancient history Long ago their fathers came from That's triggering. <laughs> okay, so a couple of things about that song. I'm sure the first thing you noticed was the beat. It's a very distinctive drum-based Native American type beat. In fact, it probably would not surprise you that we did hand gestures associated with this song. One of those gestures was putting two fingers behind our head like feathers, which refers to the feathers worn by Native Americans or Lamanites as we refer to them in the song. What is the song actually saying? Long ago, our fathers came from far across the sea and they were given this land if they lived righteously. So first of all, we're supposed to believe that white people from the Middle East came to the Americas and were told by God that because they were righteous, they get the land. What the literal fuck? It's colonization at its finest. You know, we're just little kids chanting this every Sunday, not realizing that that's seeping into our brain. That if we live righteously, we deserve the land that belongs to someone else. It's just truly, really gross. So as I continued to get older, I continued to question things. In addition to what seemed like blatant racism, I also was questioning the homophobia. I was raised to believe that being gay is not only a sin, but a choice. God does not make gay people. Being gay is an abomination in the eyes of God. That is a direct quote of what I was told when I was young. It wasn't until I was in high school and became friends with guys that were clearly gay, but absolutely not open about it, that I realized no one would choose this. And what I mean by that is if you're born Mormon and you believe it's true and you are gay, why on earth would you choose that? Why on earth would you choose to see yourself as an abomination, to know that your very existence is a sin? When I asked myself that question, the answer was very simple. You wouldn't. 
If sexuality was a choice, no one would choose to pick a sexuality that left them ostracized and a target for hate. No one would choose a sexuality that meant they had to choose between themselves and their beliefs. And just like its racism, the church's homophobia evolved. Just like with racism, when it was no longer socially acceptable to just be blatantly homophobic, their stance evolved. Once again, was God, who is all-knowing and all-powerful, a homophobe? Or was it the prophets? Were the prophets homophobes and ignoring God's will? And if they're ignoring God's will on homophobia and racism, what else are they ignoring? So then it became, well, okay, maybe people aren't choosing it, but it's definitely still a sin and an abomination and definitely don't ever act on it. Because here's the thing, sex before marriage is prohibited in Mormonism. Having sex before you're married is a sin. So if you get married as a gay man, does that mean you're okay? No, because marriage is only between a man and a woman. So if you are gay, then you're forced to make a choice. If you stay in the church, you can never act on your feelings and you can certainly never get married and you can certainly never have an intimate partner. Or you can leave the church and be ostracized from the only family and community you know. You have to choose between yourself and the church. And many times for many people, you have to choose between yourself and your family. I know far too many people who were kicked out of their family because they came out as gay. They were dead to them. And in fact, it would be better for them to be dead than to be gay. For that stance, I will never, ever, ever forgive the church. Suicide in teens within the LGBTQ community is astoundingly high. Making a group of people feel like there's something wrong with them simply for being born the way they were born is unforgivable. It's a disgrace, and the church and the families that uphold those ideologies have blood on their hands. As a teenager, I asked these questions. I asked the adults in my life who were teaching me that people choose to be gay, how could someone choose that if this is what happens to them? None of them had a good answer for me. It was always, you just have to have faith that God knows what he's doing. Yeah, fuck that. If God is a racist and a homophobe, I'm not going to believe in anything he does. And is God also a misogynist? Does God see women as lesser than men? Well, based on the things I was taught, yeah, it's pretty likely he's a misogynist. Because ultimately, in my opinion, purity culture is rooted in misogyny. So let's go ahead and talk about purity culture in Mormonism. So as far back as I can remember, I was made to feel like there was something inherently dirty about my body. A female body at any age is there for male enticement. A female body is meant to be objectified. A female body is inherently sexual. That was certainly something I was led to believe, not always explicitly, but it was definitely implied because girls were told that in order to keep boys from being enticed, we had to cover up. The focus was never about teaching boys to not objectify girls. It was all about policing girls' bodies and telling them to cover them up. Cover your shoulders, cover your chest, cover your abdomen, cover your legs. Because if you don't, then you're asking for it. Oh, and let's not forget what Dallin H. Oaks, a member of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles for the Church, had to say about the matter. And young women, please understand that if you dress immodestly, you are magnifying this problem by becoming pornography to some of the men who see you. You know what, Dallin H. Oaks? You can get fucked. Placing the blame of men objectifying girls and women on the girls and women is just fucking insane. 
Let me be abundantly clear here. To the girls and young women out there, there is nothing wrong with your body. You do not need to cover it up. You do not need to feel shame. Your body is beautiful and perfect just as it is. And you can show as much or as little as you want. And showing your body is not an invitation for sexual assault, for rape, or for objectification. And any man who says otherwise is a piece of shit that cannot control his own thoughts. Period. Let's also talk about the purity lessons that I received as a young woman. So when you are 12 years old, you go into young women's or young men's. You stay there until you are 18. One of the earliest lessons I can remember getting as a young woman was the chewed piece of gum analogy. It goes like this. Your young women's leader has a pack of gum. She asks, who would like a piece of gum? Of course, everyone raises their hand because who doesn't want a piece of gum? She opens a piece of gum, puts it in her mouth and chews it up. Then she takes it out and holds it up and says, now who wants it? Who wants it now that it's been chewed? Do you see where I'm going with this? This piece of gum is your virginity. It's your purity. It's the one thing that truly makes you valuable. But if you get chewed up, no one is going to want you because no one wants a chewed piece of gum. If you have sex before you get married, no one will want you because the only thing that makes you valuable is your purity. As a young woman, when I first heard these lessons, I was so scared. What if I have sex before I'm married and then I'm no longer of any value to anyone? I was so terrified that the one thing that made me valuable would be gone and then what? Be single for the rest of my life and die alone with my cats. <laughs> oh, the dying alone with cats came much later. <laughs> I got a little older and I continued to get these lessons. There was another one about a licked cupcake, the... Young women's leader had a tray of cupcakes, asked who wanted one, and of course then informed us all that they had all been licked. And now who wants one? Because no one wants a licked cupcake. No one wants you to be a whore. No one will accept you or love you if you have sex before marriage. But as I got older, I started to think this is bullshit. Because you know what? The boys aren't given the same lesson. They aren't told that their value is in their purity. They aren't told that the only thing that makes them valuable to a woman is their virginity. They're basically just told to keep it in their pants. So purity culture is and has always been, again, like I said, rooted in misogyny. And this is why. Purity culture is about controlling women more than anything. Because frankly, a sexually liberated woman is a woman that cannot be controlled. She's a woman who can't be controlled and shamed into doing what you want. The best thing to do is not allow her to become sexually liberated. The best thing to do is to shame her about her body and her sexuality. One of the best forms of control is shame. Purity culture is also rooted in the ownership of women's bodies. Your body belongs belongs to your future husband. Your virginity belongs to your future husband. Again, they do not tell young men this. They do not tell young men that their virginity belongs to their future wife. So with these messages constantly swirling inside my head, I inherently thought that there was something wrong with me because I liked boys. I wanted to kiss boys. I wanted to touch boys. I wanted to make out with boys and I wanted to have sex with boys. That means there's something wrong with me because good girls don't want those things. Girls that will be chosen for wives and mothers don't want those things. But here's the other insidious part of the whole purity culture thing. Who are the leaders in these churches? 
Men. Men are the ones that ultimately tell us whether we're worthy or not. Those men are bishops and tell us what's allowed and what isn't. Men tell us how we should feel about our own bodies. Men tell us what we're allowed to think about. So what ends up happening in so many young women is they develop this inherent need to be approved of by men. want the attention and the validation and the approval of men. Because in the Mormon church, men hold all the power. Men hold the priesthood, women cannot. We are told to uphold and revere men with the priesthood. We are told that our bishops have final say in whether we're worthy for something or not. So all of this results in young women becoming very susceptible to male manipulation. That is fucking dangerous. I know women who were in abusive relationships, and they went to their bishop about the abuse. Those bishops didn't go to the police. Those bishops say asinine, stupid shit like pray about it. They remind them that they made a holy commitment for time and all eternity when they got married. They remind them that their husband is a good, upstanding priesthood holder. And ultimately, they send them right back into abuse. At the end of December, a man in southern Utah annihilated his entire family. A nice Mormon man, a nice upholding priesthood holder. He killed his wife, his children, and his mother-in-law and then himself. Community was so surprised because he seemed like such a good man. What prompted this? His wife filed for divorce. Now I'm going to go ahead and make some assumptions here. My guess is she's approached her bishop at some point in the past. My guess is that there was something going on in that marriage that led her to file for divorce that led him to feel like he needed to kill his whole family. My guess is that Bishop likely did nothing to prevent this from happening. And sadly, this type of thing happens all the time in high-demand fundamental religions. Women are simply at risk for existing inside of those types of religions. Men are always in charge. Men are always at the top, looking down. They have all of the power. Literally, in this case, men are the only ones with the power of the priesthood. Men have a clear and direct line to God. And too many men inside religion wield that power like a billy club. So as I got older and into my teen years, I continued to ask why. I continued to push and question. None of the responses satisfied me. None of them made sense. It mostly just seemed like a bunch of bullshit and a bunch of excuses. It just felt like they were constantly excusing shitty, oppressive, and abusive behavior. I also never really resonated with the teachings. I never felt these overt spiritual experiences. I never felt the quote-unquote spirit, as people would say. I never heard the Holy Ghost whispering in my ear. I mostly just heard my own inner thoughts saying, I think this is fucking stupid. None of it was adding up, and every time I would question, I would be met with, well, you just have to have faith, you just have to believe, and I'm just like, no. Blind faith is both stupid and dangerous, and I'm not here for it. And as I headed into college with all of these things swirling inside my head, the misogyny, the racism, the homophobia, just swirling, swirling, swirling around, that is when things really started to unravel. So it didn't happen all at once. It happened over a series of events that took place in my college years. So when I moved out and went to college, I did the first thing that I thought I was supposed to do. I joined what's called a singles ward. Well, technically I joined a student ward, but essentially it's a congregation that's only for single students. And then once you're no longer a student, if you're still not married because you know you're a pathetic pariah, um, then you go to a singles ward. So I joined one of these student wards and had a terrible, terrible fucking experience. The girls were very, very mean. They definitely saw every other girl 
as competition. The internalized misogyny was rampant. I mean, internalized misogyny in general within the Mormon church is pretty significant, but it is so much worse in these singles wards because you're all competing for the same shitty men. So the girls were mean to me. They wouldn't talk to me. And the guys were unhinged lunatic perverts. Like, I maintain that there is nothing more disgusting and perverted than a newly returned male Mormon missionary. So if you're not familiar, Mormon youth can opt to go on a mission for two years. Well, the boys go for two years. I think the girls still go for 18 months. So it used to be boys at 19 and girls at 21 if you're not married, which, (laughs) yeah. Uh, If you're not married, (laughs) you can go on a mission. They lowered the age to 18. So now boys at 18 can go. I don't know if girls are 19 or what the situation is there. But anyway, you go for two years and give your life to the Lord. You go door to door knocking. You do all sorts of stuff to try and spread the word of God. Honestly, can't think of anything worse than door to door sales, except door to door sales for a church. Anyway, for two years, they don't watch TV or movies. They're kind of cut off from the main world. They don't have internet access, like nothing. And so they're just like living for Jesus for two years. And then they come back and they're unleashed on these poor, unsuspecting young women young women that have been shamed into thinking there's something wrong with their body and that sex is nasty and gross, but also at the same time seeking male approval and validation. I said, it's a terrible combination. And these guys have no concept of consent. They think that what they want is their right to take. They're horny and crazy. Let me just share a few of my experiences. So one night I was at a study group with some friends and classmates, and it was at one of their houses. And that person had a male roommate. They were both male roommate was not in the class, but he was hanging around and kind of flirting with me. At that time, I was like, yes, yes, male attention, give it to me. (laughs) Anyhow, it got really late. So like two o'clock in the morning, I went and laid on the couch to fall asleep. We were cramming for a test, by the way. Sometime later, I don't know how much time went by, I woke up by being jostled. I was being shaken and I wasn't sure what was going on. Lying next to me on this couch was the roommate with his dick out in his hands jerking off. He laid down next to me, put his hand on my boob, thankfully over my clothes, but still, and decided to jerk off onto my body. I woke up to him releasing his boys onto my shirt. He then silently got up and walked away. And you know what the most fucked up part of that fucked up situation is? I felt guilty. I felt guilty that my body had enticed him to the point where he had to jerk off next to me. That is fucked up. He assaulted me. I felt guilty. I felt like I had done something really, really wrong. And in reality, I had done nothing but fall asleep. Let's hear another one, shall we? So this time, I developed a crush on the lead singer of a band. I think the band's name was like Andreas Felt or some shit. I still can't believe I had a crush on him. I think it was just because he was a musician, and something about that was like so exciting and enticing. But in reality, he was a short little weirdo with an overinflated ego. So at the time, I was the arts and entertainment editor for the school paper. I was at his show to write a review and to interview the band. So I do my job, and then he asks for my number. He ended up reaching out to me and asking me to come over at like 10 p.m one night. And we all know what that's code for. Now keep in mind that I am 19 years old. I had never given a blowjob before. So we are making out and he starts doing the blowjob tug of war bullshit nonsense. You know where they start to push your head down. Men, stop fucking doing that. If we want to go down on you, we will. Stop shoving women's heads. Anyway, so I'm kind of fighting that off for a little while. And then finally I say, 
are you wanting me to do what I think you want me to do? And again, I'm like too naive to even say it out loud. And he's like, yeah, I do. I was like, are you sure that's what you want me to do? He's like, yes, yes, of course. So when you go on a mission, also when you go through the temple in general, you wear what's called garments, the ugliest, most unsexy, long white underwear you've ever seen in your life. He was wearing these. These are supposed to be sacred. They're supposed to protect your body, cover your body. So I have to move his garments out of the way. I will never, ever forget how tiny his dick was. (laughs) Like a tube of lipstick. I'm not even kidding. He had so much insane, like straight, long pubic hair. (laughs) I'm not body shaming people here, like small penises and weird pubic hair, totally fine. But if you're a piece of shit, I'm going to make fun of you. And he was a massive piece of shit. So I get to business and it doesn't take long, like maybe two minutes, maybe. Again, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just kind of guessing, but you know, it's not, it's not difficult to understand or figure out. So he finishes and thank God I had the wherewithal to get out of the way because he certainly didn't warn me. He immediately says, I can't believe you just did that. I can't believe you would do that. You should go. This motherfucker had the audacity to pressure me to force my head down into his crotch and then shame me for doing what he asked me to do. This priesthood holder, this man of God, this garment wearing piece of fucking shit had the audacity to shame me for doing what he asked me to do. That post nut clarity is a real bitch, huh? So once again, I was left feeling horrified and disgusted by my own behavior. I felt so guilty and so bad, like I had violated him, like I had done something wrong. Not only had I done nothing wrong, but I'd asked for his consent multiple times before proceeding, something that in my entire life, no man has ever done for me. I will say this. He had a very unique name. His first name was Merrick. And all these years later, I saw Merrick on a dating app. And Merrick had lost his hair and had not aged well. (laughs) And Merrick tried to match with me. (laughs) Guess is he didn't remember me at all. It's the thing about these traumatic experiences. The person traumatized remembers them for the rest of their life. The person causing the harm is typically left unscathed. Simply a blip in time. I'm going to share one more of these experiences. This one is more traumatizing. Trigger warning for sexual assault. May 19th, 1997. There was a guy I worked with at Media Play. Do you guys remember Media Play? They had like books, movies, computer stuff, and music. I worked in the music department. He worked in the computer department. He was also a Mormon, but he was from Florida and had moved to Utah to repent, as he put it. He was a sexual deviant, according to his parents, and he was sent to Utah to try and straighten him out. We flirted for a few weeks, and then one time he asked me if I wanted to go to dinner. He took me to the Olive Garden. I had never been before. Seemed so fancy. (laughs) And he made fun of me for not knowing that I'm supposed to use a spoon in order to, like, swirl up my spaghetti. Arrogant fucking prick. Growing up, going out to eat was a very, very rare occurrence. Just didn't have the money for it. When I was young, I would get to go out to eat once a year on my birthday. We would go to this burger joint and I would get a crispy chicken sandwich and it was the most delicious thing I had ever eaten. So no, I didn't know that I needed to use my spoon to twirl my spaghetti. 
But overall, the date went fine. So a week later, when he asked me to go with him to babysit his nephew, I said yes. And of course, I never could have known this at the time, but that decision had a wide and deep impact on the rest of my life. What ended up happening changed so much for me. It changed how I felt about myself. It changed how I felt about the church. It changed how I felt about my future. I am going to pause here and share what happens next in part two. Part two will cover what happened that day in May, and it will cover what happened after. I will go into my journey of separating from the church and what that meant for me personally, what that meant for me in regards to my family and my friends and my future. I will also go into how I didn't really start the true deconstruction process until the last three years or so. It wasn't until 2020 that I had this, I guess you could call it awakening, and I finally realized just how deeply impacted I had been by purity culture in particular. Still very much a part of the fabric of who I was. I will be getting into all of that in part two. I am sorry to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger, but I promise you it's worth it to come back. And in the meantime, if you could like, share, rate, review, you know, do all the things, I would really, really appreciate it. I would love it if you could share this podcast with at least one person you think would benefit from hearing it. Of course, if you're so inclined, you can support me on Patreon as well. Links to all of my social media, including my Patreon, are in the show notes. And with that, my friends, I hope you have a beautiful day, and I hope you remember to smash the fucking patriarchy. I love you all.